Look, we know you, the listeners, probably do not want this. I mean, I agree with you. I didn't want to do it either. And I'm hard-pressed to claim that this episode is going to make much of an impact on the global Star War critical industrial complex. But if Friendly Fire has made one thing abundantly clear at this point, it's not just that we aren't especially responsive to fan feedback regarding our choices, it's that we are still trying to decide what exactly constitutes a war film. And damn it, this one has wars right in the title. All the great sub-genres of war film, boot camp film, submarine film, heist film, beach makeout film, they've all had to make their case for their rightful place in the war movie pantheon. But what about space war? I know you nerds believe space war is real because I've been to like five comic cons and I see how your eyes shine when Adam Savage walks by dressed as Chewbacca. I also read just enough of the fan mail for this show to know that you're all clamoring for us to do Starship Troopers. You just didn't expect that we would do Star Wars and just drop it into our normal feed. Well, here we are. In the 1970s, when his film school contemporaries were working up big movies about the mob and archaeology and shark attacks in Vietnam, George Lucas was writing about a made-up war between a powerful galactic empire and a group of hard-scrabble rebels and Muppets and space farmers. Coppola was over redefining film with Brando and De Niro, while Lucas explored the gibberish mystical belief system that maybe was galactic Unitarianism or maybe was some kind of midichlorian, which isn't a thing. Who knows? Can you imagine him describing it to John Milius while Milius was sitting there eating a Snickers bar with a knife or whatever? He must have laughed him out of the room. I mean, can you imagine being friends with John Milius? There's something deeply wrong with all of these people. Anyway, Star Wars, which is later called Star Wars Episode Four: The New Hope, which was some expression of a super weird personal revisionism and cultural gaslighting on the part of Lucas, which I relate directly with the increasingly insane way he trims his beard as though he is sculpting a chin for himself out of hair. Anyway, this New Hope business which was only embraced by the Stockholm Syndrome-addled Star Wars fan community, uh, who I also think are accepting this midichlorian horse feathers, well, and also by uh, people born in the 90s, whom I can't defend or even understand. But this is your basic outnumbered, outgunned, liberal democratic underdog with a secret weapon against a big, bad, black-clad empire war film. There's ship-to-ship combat, like in Master and Commander. There's sword fighting, like in Braveheart. And a little romance sprinkled in for good measure, like From Here to Eternity. Of course it's a war movie. The first two and a half Star Wars films are good war movies. Before Lucas, like Lenny from Of Mice and Men, petted his bunnies to death with his grubby CGI fingers. I can't really speak to the rest of the canon, whether it's good war movies or not, because I started to get confused around the time that guy from Girls showed up. Anyway, I don't need to summarize this film. It's in our collective midichlorians, but it's hard not to get chills at that cold opening. And remember when this future was all so new before it became an evil empire all its own. For so many people, this is where not only a love of Star Wars began, it's where a love of movies started. This may not be the podcast you're looking for, so move along as we discuss George Lucas's 1977 space opera, Star Wars. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast using the tropes of the monomyth to exploit deep pathways in the human brain for vast returns on investment, because capitalism perverts even artistic expression to its own ends. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm John Roderick, and I do not sign off on that opening statement. (laughs) (laughs) Disagree, huh? Just don't sign. Was that dialogue from one of the prequel movies? <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the screen crawl at the start of episode two. They get past the trade blockade language and they get into that. Mm-hmm. One of the fun things that I read about uh, episode four was that Brian De Palma saw the first draft of the crawl and was like, "What the fuck is this, George?" <laughs> How about you hand the crawl to me and I'll do a copy edit of it so that it makes some fucking sense. When Brian De Palma is the one improving your movie. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The idea that there's like this Knights of the Round Table gathering, like George Lucas's friends helped make this movie in a weird way. Like the origin story of it is fascinating. And the fact that De Palma was involved and John Milius and Steven Spielberg, like... What rare fun air that must have been. Well, I I only wish that the same were true about the subsequent efforts. Like right. if if his little uh, cadre of of fellow talents had had any say in where this property went. You know what I think happened though is like Lucas didn't have any confidence in the film and his friends didn't either. And what happened was was what I feel like Star Wars got super popular and gave him false confidence that that he could write whatever the hell he wanted listen if this is the first of the first place on the internet where we accuse george lucas or where anyone accuses george lucas of false confidence then let it be now let it be here (laughs) i will die on that hill hey do we want to give you a good like 10 minutes to just talk about george lucas's facial hair like Uh. is that is that time you want to take or do you, you know want to just... We can get there. We can get there. Okay. I would just like to start from the beginning, stipulate for the purposes of this podcast that I will not refer to it as episode four. I hope okay. you will not refer to it as episode four. Can we agree that this movie is called Star Wars? Sure. And that... Can we ask Rob to beep out all no. references to episode four? <laughs> no, no, no. It, it, I mean, I understand you guys are a different generation and you're going to slip up and you're going to call it episode four, A New Hope. <laughs> and it's going to, every time my face is going to get comic book purple and <laughs> and hilarious Bugs Bunny steam is going to come out of my ears. I was reading uh, some Reddit threads about this film. And, oh, uh, no. The Reddit people refer to it as ANH. That's that's the uh, online abbreviation. First of all, for the Reddit film. people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what they should have called Jawas. <laughs> um, I I mean I think we have like a unique opportunity here because there have been groups of three straight white dudes sitting around talking about Star Wars. Doubtful, but oh, for time right. in a, immemorial. All right, I'll give it to you. A group of three or more white people is actually called a Reddit. <laughs> I think it's called a, a colony. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we're a war movie podcast, so we, I think we can put a pretty unique spin on this conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I, I, throughout the movie, I was watching it as a war movie primarily and not as a nostalgia trip. And right. uh, I think it stands up as a war movie. This movie resembles a movie about the Battle of Midway. Right, the whole the whole attack on the on the Death Star is like attacking the Bismarck or attacking. It's like a battleship. 
right? The Yamato. The, the Yamato. That's right. And a lot of those tropes of just like, we're going in and your friends are getting picked off left and right. I mean, it's very, uh, I, I hear Star Wars referred to all the time as a space Western, but it feels like a, it, it, there's a lot of World War II movie in the DNA here. There's a lot of samurai movie in it too. Like it's very Kurosawa, you know, a ton of Kurosawa DNA in this in this film mm -hmm. when uh when ilm was late on making the effects for the early cuts lucas actually cut in world war ii fighter footage really? as, as, as temp footage <laughs> to sort of sell the idea oh that's so great i want to see that cut i think you're spot on with that john in that and that world war ii feel if i had to watch one thing either this fucking atrocity with a digital job of the hut <laughs> slopping around in the in the the bay there on most Isley or a movie where all the fighter scenes were taken from World War II movies I'd do the latter I would pick the latter we can't talk about this movie without talking about that re-release right we sort of have to it's the only version that that Lucasfilm allows anymore well, and this is outside the purview of talking about it as a war film, but we I guess we got to get it off. I at least feel like I have to get it off my chest. I wanted to watch the movie, the original movie, not this. Yeah, movie. I'd love to see like the Criterion Collection release of the original movie. Yeah, that should be a thing. The stuff that doesn't belong, the stuff that's been shoehorned in there, it stands out like a sore thumb. I mean, as I was watching it with my friend and even the even the sh the little one, little shots just there there are a couple that are just like a different angle but it's just wrong it just doesn't belong there the it looks chemical and you can you can tell which shots don't belong because they're the shots that do not advance the plot at all are not useful at all and also look bad i feel like <laughs> he got into a dick measuring contest with spielberg because I read the whole reason that he did the effects in the re-release was because he saw Jurassic Park and he's like, I want some of that shit in my movie. <sighs> like he felt like technology had caught up to his vision in such a way that he's seeing these dinos in Jurassic Park and he's like, well, I can finally make digital Jabba the Hutt the way that he should look. And what what was false about that idea, a lot of things were false about that that, that idea, but Spielberg knew to hide his digital elements in the dark a lot of times. Right. And the desert renders digital beasts terribly. Yes. That yes. is like in bright sunlight, that is not how you want to sell an effect. No. And it really cripples the film in a in a number of places. And in most Isley especially, the Cantina scene so I should say right out of the gate that I saw this movie in the theaters in nineteen seventy seven. I was nine Man. years old, and I was absolutely one. I mean, this movie was made precisely for me. It was made for <laughs> nine-year-old boys in 1977. And I, I waited in the long line that went around the United Artists Theater in downtown Seattle. It went around the, around the block and then around it again. That is the last line you ever waited in, right? <laughs> well, at, at a certain point, I threw my hat down on the ground, my little, my little Mariner's baseball hat, and said, I demand satisfaction, and stormed off. <laughs> but you know this this movie made the rounds you know eventually it left the ua theater and it was up at the crest and you know and i saw this movie six times that summer probably and we all had the action figures and i remember the trash compactor play set if you can, <laughs> that had the little one-eyed snake in it 
Did you fill it with water? No, no, it was filled with little foam bits and little pieces of garbage. Like That's to imagine great. to imagine a, a a thing a movie that was so captivating that you would buy a a trash compactor playset. <laughs> <laughs> but that that scene when they go into Mos Eisley, like you know, it's crazy because later if you look at the Jawas now and and you think about it in the context of later Star Wars films, you realize like, oh, the Jawas are cute. Like they're going, they have cute little voices. They're little cutie, little cute things because they, because he followed up on them with, with basically like all of his little teddy bears of the future. Uh, but at the time they didn't read as cute. They were terrifying. Yeah. And um, John, this is actually set a long time ago, far, far away. So this is not the future. It is very, right. very hurtful and dismaying that you would make that. It is so dangerous to talk about this movie because every everything has been studied and named. Oh, every know. alien has a name. I know. Like I want to talk about most Eisley. Don't like, at in the- me, nerds. <laughs> Most Eisley is like kind of an occupied, like port city, right? Yeah, it's like a it's like a Casablanca, basically. Yeah, yeah. I'll just let everybody know we haven't seen any of the other movies in this series, so <laughs> we can't we can't draw on them to to fill any of this out. But you know, like the idea that like the galactic government has been dissolved and there are just soldiers walking around in the streets of like this like this is such a backwater too. Like, did the were there stormtroopers there already, or did they blow into town amidst the the hunt for the Death Star plans? Uh, that's a that's a, a, mo- a movie trope about the Nazis too, right? That you could set any World War II movie in Europe in any little town, and there would be some garrison of of Nazis there. And I think that I think the stormtroopers that are there are amped up and and uh, augmented, but they don't seem. It seems like most Eisley's just going about its business. It doesn't feel like they just showed... They're like a new presence. The Empire is definitely modeled on the Nazis. Oh, wait a minute now. That's quite a hot take, boy. (laughs) Look out, world. I think it's interesting that, like, it's a a wretched hive of scum and villainy, but that seems to kind of go... Like, that's not what they're what they're there looking for so they don't really care about that i guess well that's oh that's what i was trying to say about the most icely cantina when you walked in there and and that opening establishing set of little vignettes little shots of all the different aliens that were partying in this bar it's a real united colors of benetton yeah. type of bar <laughs> and it, and it's and it's a, it's right out of like what we all want from science fiction which is it's this. It's basically Star Trek. It's Star Trek with forty more types of aliens than Star Trek has ever shown. Yeah, right. Forty <laughs> more types of aliens, but they're all humanoid. They all breathe the same air, except for like yeah. one or two people, and they can sit around a table and they gleep and glorp at each other. But everybody understands one another's languages, and and ultimately, like they're congregating in a bar. They're, it's not. They're not sitting around some um, some tribunal or or Senate, they're like, this is the, this is the scum and villainy. And boy, as a nine-year-old that, I mean, most Eisley, every scene in this movie had a tremendous impact on, on me as a kid, but that establishing shot just, you know, it, it explained an entire universe. 
yeah in a very casual kind of pretty easy to do little shot and and the, the problem with the digital stuff in most Eisley is that it robs that because you come in and you're you're looking at stormtroopers riding giant lizards all around and they all look really fake and then you walk in the door and here's these like cartoon like muppet alien people and it's just sort of like <laughs> oh none of this is ex- exciting or surprising now Given the diversity in that cantina, it's really remarkable that they have a small carve-out for no droids. <laughs> I wondered that, too. <laughs> hey, hey, no! We don't serve your kind in here. All these other guys, they're cool, not you guys. What do you mean, these two things that don't drink? <laughs> There's a, a line I noticed in Moss Eisley where they're when they're like racing to get out of there, they're I, they're heading to the Falcon and the and the stormtroopers are onto them, and uh, one of the like the stormtrooper sergeant says, "Load your guns, men." They're like, "All right, guys, load your weapons." <laughs> I was like, "What are they? They're walking around with these rifles and they're not loaded." Safety first. <laughs> That's right. They have good trigger discipline. Also, who's that the the spy that they employ there? Like, do you think that that's just a local that's like available for you know light uh, espionage, like on a on a freelance basis? Talking about horsecock face. <laughs> yeah, uh, voiced by um, John Wayne, I believe. <laughs> I'm not kidding. What? I think that that's John Wayne's voice. Are you talking about the guy with the gas mask face who, yeah. who trails them? I mean, I, you get the feeling that there is a there's quite a bit of foreshadowing that happens, and Lucas is populating this world with scum and villain. He does in the in the not to keep going back to the terrible job of the hut footage, but there's at the very end of that job of the hut footage, the last thing you see as he and his henchmen walk out is what Boba Fett, right turns around and almost looks straight at the camera like <laughs> see me Boba Fett here I am you're gonna see me later <laughs> they star wipe straight to his head after that scene <laughs> by my toy right <laughs> Boba Fett I'm, I'm an important character you'll see me later and it's like uh, I feel like there's a certain amount it's crazy when you watch this film and you realize that it has been dissected so much that it's it's maybe impossible to know how much the actors and Lucas were were conscious that that would ever happen. Like when Luke first mentions Princess Leia and Han Solo goes, a princess? <laughs> and it just reverberates with like 40 years of Han and Leia and they're, one day they're going to get married and they're going to have their own Darth Vader <laughs> Bouncing baby Darth, <laughs> and and you have to but, deliver a baby Vader via C-section, right? Uh, <laughs> That's just too big. No, to go they're the so cute at first. A, a little baby <laughs> Vader, they're just cute. You can't tell them apart from regular babies. But Aww. but in that moment, uh, Harrison Ford is just doing a line reading of like a princess. I mean, it's 1976. And I'm sure they're all doing cocaine and having sex with each other all the time. And they're, it's, they're just filming this movie as a goof. And they're like, oh, wow, princess, what now? And he is he and no one on the set, even not Lucas, not anybody, is thinking 40 years from now, we're still going to be talking about this. <laughs> this is good. This is like the biggest thing in all of our lives. 
even <laughs> even though I'm like going to go, I'm going to end up being a huge, huge, huge actor. It's always going to come back to Star Wars and Han Solo. So that I, I feel like when as Gas Mask Face was walking around most Eisley getting ready to betray them, that did and, feel- and qualifying this movie for our podcast by being voiced by John Wayne. Hmm. Uh, are you sure? I I only heard that character go like. He has John Wayne was an American actor. He provided the voice for uh, Imperial spy Garindin in Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope via stock audio, making this his last role in a film before his death. Wayne's voice was processed greatly for the movie via stock audio. Yeah, you could just do that. You could just grab some John Wayne and throw it in. I'm not a I'm not an IP attorney, mm-hmm. as is evidenced by all of my podcasting career. <laughs> I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to go listen to that because that's great. But I. But that did. That character did feel like somebody who Lucas had in mind to reappear. Uh, right. And and I'm not sure. I don't, I'm not well enough versed in the canon. Don't at me, nerds. Oh yeah, someone's gonna tell you by whether putting or not, that question out in the ether. Whether or not he shows up in the sky cities. Or whether <laughs> he comes later at, 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 at Minas Tirith or, you know, like <laughs> where we see this guy again. Yeah, he, he was cut from Jabba's barge scenes in the third film because uh, his nose is erect the entire time because of <laughs> Leia's bathing suit. And uh, it just uh, it was a little too hot for TV. I think we're right to talk about Mos Eisley as much as we are because that's really the, the inflection point for the whole film like up until then luke is just a farmer and if he's supposed to turn into a hero he needs to go into a dangerous place and how he conducts himself in this place is so telling like he's a fucking bumpkin and a hick he has no idea how dangerous the place he's about to go into is and it (laughs) informs all of the other decisions that he makes later like it's why he's so brave in, you know, volunteering to fly an X-Wing, like, which without Mos Eisley would seem insane. Like, no one vets vets Luke for pre-flight style, but it's believable right. because of, of how cocksure he is going into this bar. It's not just about finding the ride with Han Solo and Chewie. Like, it's about developing Luke in that moment. And and Luke is in so little of that scene, and yet it does so much for his for his character. And he doesn't like he doesn't panic when uh, somebody you know starts a fight with him and his right. and his grandpa has to cut their arm off to, yeah. to end it. Yeah, and he doesn't freak out when the arm is cut off either. Like a, a less heroic person would be like, oh, oh, god, no. Yeah, I was also thinking like when they're running around on the Death Star, like Luke kills a bunch of stormtroopers, and he never has that like my you know the first life I've taken moment. Is that why Luke doesn't freak out when his own arm is cut off? Like, because he's seen that up close before? <laughs> well, it happens Maybe. a lot in that world. <laughs> Maybe Luke is a psychopath. <laughs> well, it's it, it's curious, right? Because Luke has, was famously always derided as a brat. And when you watch this movie, it's absolutely true. He whinges his way through every scene. Just He's just whiny and... But with the blast shield down, I can't see anything. (laughs) You know, that whole scene when they're like escaping, they're escaping the Death Star, they're tiptoeing onto the Millennium Falcon. And then he, he like peels off to watch the the movie (laughs) with the stormtroopers of Darth Vader and and, uh, Obi-Wan sword fighting. And then 
<laughs> then uh, Ben Kenobi gets killed. Like does a, does the whole beautiful like. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Looks at him, and then Luke doesn't have the fucking wherewithal to not go. <laughs> you know, like turn around and tiptoe out of there. Fucking dumbass. Like yeah, it, in in Kurosawa's hands, this would be like a character struggling to maintain their composure, but maintaining it. You know, right? Well, but uh, so watching this movie, it, like all of the whining accusation about Luke is true, but also this is meant to be the hero's journey, where this farm boy, this callow. Uh, cocksure farm uh, right. boy. We've already been over this, John. It's a giant corporation exploiting the monomyth for profit. <laughs> um, but as far as a hero's journey goes, you're absolutely right. He never has the I've just taken a life moment. He never develops any sort of real gravity as a person. The only, the, the only thing that makes it a hero's journey is that Obi-Wan appears in his ear hole and tells him what to do. <laughs> and he ends up like, I mean, if you just saw your mystical uh, sword fighting gnome get killed and then he starts talking into your headphone. Yeah, and he he's says, like the producer of a reality show. <laughs> yeah, and he says, turn off your, he doesn't even say turn off your targeting computer. He says, Luke, trust the force. Like he does it. He basically obeys the command. Yeah, he but, could have still used the targeting computer. You're right. Like, he wasn't ordered not to. Sure, go ahead. Use them both. Targeting computer, force, <laughs> you know, like pull out every every pen out of your little pen jar. If I was doing a re-release of this film, when we cut back to CENTCOM for the rebellion and they get the word that Lucas turned off his targeting computer, <laughs> I, I would have everybody go, what? Oh, no! Fuck! <laughs> yeah, there's just a couple of guys that raise eyebrows at each other, but yeah. yeah first like- we lose Porkins, then Luke <laughs> turns off his targeting computer. Oh, we got four fucking chips left in this whole fucking desperate attempt to save our skins, and he turned off his fucking targeting computer? Why? Yeah, Why? The one guy in the entire fleet that's never flown one of those Thing. Right. <laughs> He's the only one They don't one even left. give him a check ride. No. Like, they just stick him in an X-Wing. Yeah. Like, they take his word for it. Yeah, can you handle that thing? And then his, his little buddy, Mr. Mustache, is like, oh, he's a great pilot. It's like, what <laughs> were they flying exactly on They Dantooine? must be super desperate for pilots. Well, I, It's I, like the end of Independence Day, you know? Oh, right. I guess it, so. You know, the, the guy that's been flying a crop duster the entire movie is suddenly an a F-16 heroic pilot. pilot. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, Luke did not become very grave um, or wise, right? Even Han Solo, he goes through a whole, like, moral arc uh, in a short amount of time. And he's never inconsistent with himself. And at the end, you know, his, his like, Yahoo cowboy move is completely, like, Han Solo it's it's just as it goes it goes right along with the the scene he was in immediately prior where he was like I'm taking this gold and getting out of here but Luke never I mean even at the end when when she puts the medal on him he's just like (laughs) just he's like a he's like still a puppy that yellow motorcycle jacket's pretty dope though it is I mean their (laughs) costumes are killer yeah although I felt as a seven-year-old I felt betrayed that she had different hair at the end I felt like her hair what, through that movie was as much her, I mean, that was as much her costume as 
as Han Solo's uh, knee-high leather boots. Can you tell me where Carrie Fisher fit in 1977 in the hierarchy of, like, most beautiful women in the world? Like, was she a thing that I hope and believe she was back then? I mean, I wasn't alive back then, but, like, did she have a poster on, on people's bedroom walls? No. I mean, before Star Wars, Carrie Fisher, this was the first thing she ever did. She was, like, 20. Um, and so no one had heard of her, although she was, if you were, like, a Hollywood follower, you knew who she was because of her parents. But, like, a kid wouldn't have known her. And then Princess Leia, like, we should say that this is one of the first war movies we've watched where there is a strong female lead and she is a total badass in this movie. And the movie doesn't, uh, the, the movie gets out of the way of her and lets her be a badass. The, o- the only scene that's, a, that's even a little bit like the script could have been tweaked just a little is when they're standing on the, the bridge in that channel. They're, and they're trying to get across the bridge and they can't get the bridge to go and the door is down and the stormtroopers are coming from behind and then they're shooting from up above on another balcony. Yeah. And Luke is shooting, shooting, shooting and then he try, he gets his, his like bat hook out and he's trying to to figure out how this this bat hook from his utility belt works. It's just like you wonder why a stormtrooper who lives and works on a space station is issued a bat hook. <laughs> Right, and 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 he just puts on this belt, and he's like, "What's in? The- oh, here's a pack of cigarettes. Here's some chewing gum." <laughs> they really weren't kidding with how incomplete the Death Star was at this point in time. <laughs> they got to finish some of these bridges. But in that moment, he um, he hands her the rifle and says, "Hold this." <laughs> <laughs> While he's like grappling, and then she immediately starts shooting stormtroopers. Yeah, um, but it was it it was neither played for laughs nor was it didn't really seem intentional. It was a it was a missed opportunity to our in our era because in our era that moment would have been played where she reached over and said, let me handle this. And then immediately killed 40 people. And we were all like, right. yay, strong female lead. And then robot Joan Rivers goes, I'd say that was pretty good for Rambo. <laughs> yeah. They didn't make fun of her. She didn't kill everyone. And then it wasn't a, it wasn't a laughing moment. It's, it was better that she missed. Like it was empowering that she missed. Right. She, she, she missed a lot just as he did. Mm-hmm. But from the very beginning, from her first appearance in the movie to the last, she never flinches and she's the biggest shit talker in the movie. I mean, I always thought Han Solo yeah. was the shit talker, but she shit talks every, everybody mm-hmm. and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She calls Chewie a walking carpet. So we didn't, as, as little boys, there was no like bathing suit picture of Leia or like Carrie Fisher. Oh, she's so beautiful. I guess what I was asking was like, do you take down your Farrah Fawcett picture and put up the Carrie Fisher with a blaster picture? Like, was there that sort of cultural replacement after this movie came out? Like, was she, did she make the leap? Well, you have to, I mean, I, I guess as I think about it, she was unique in that respect. Yeah. I mean, it, even like, like Charlie's Angels, I mean, they were in bathing suits most of the time and, and Carrie or like, you know, dresses. Carrie Fisher's in a, in a Shaolin monk robe mm-hmm. for the whole film. And I don't, I mean, she just was a, she was a, a creature apart in, in our pantheon, I guess. 
I guess like I keep asking around a question trying to get like a different answer, but I guess, you know, like the way Wonder Woman was seen as like a watershed moment for like female heroism in films, like was Carrie Fisher in the first Star Wars film viewed in that way? Or was she, was she part of such an ensemble that, that she did not stick out in that way, the way that a, a title character would in a modern uh, war or, or superhero film? Probably to film critics, or maybe to film critics. Yeah. As a nine-year-old, you know, the thing, like, in in contemporary culture criticism, uh, people are going to say, they're going to assert very strongly that a nine-year-old boy is already completely inculcated in the, uh, in a, like, patriarchal cultural mindset, et cetera, et cetera. But if you've ever been a nine-year-old, you know that, you are down in the trenches with other little kids and every kid is you take every kid as he comes or she comes and little nine-year-old girls are fucking strong and powerful and they were in 1977 too you know what i mean like there is no uh patriarchal culture among nine-year-olds you're just trying to make it and little girls are just as fucking ferocious so as a nine-year-old boy watching this adventure movie she did not stand out as um, like, oh my goodness, look at this, an amazing female archetype. <laughs> um, what she was was just like a badass character in this movie mm-hmm. who, had a, who could handle a blaster and who could, I mean, she was much more like what a nine-year-old would think little girls were, which is dangerous and <laughs> murderers, you know? Uh, and also, like, nine-year-old girls are a lot sharper than nine-year-old boys. They are the ones that have the uh, quick wit and the biting humor. I mean, I, of- I often was taken down by, by sharp-witted nine-year-old girls. I don't know if... I can't speak for everybody. I'm sure you guys were just, like, Rico Suaves. But. John, was this <laughs> the first movie you saw in the theater? It seems like eight is around the time a lot of kids go for the first time to see, like, a big, big movie. No, that, that period in the 1970s was the dawn of big blockbusters. And we'd been going to the theater for big... It was the big summer movie since i mean nine so jaws came out in 75 oh right right and jaws was the and you saw that as a five-year-old well no this is the thing (laughs) jaws was a thing where um so i i'm sorry i was nine for star wars i would have been seven for jaws and jaws was a thing where parents needed to decide Everybody in the country is talking about this movie. There's pictures of it everywhere. <laughs> Your kid wants to go see it because it looks like a monster movie. Do you take your kid to see Jaws? And parents can your child's fragile ego handle this film? Yeah, and and any parent who took their kid to see Jaws regretted it for decades <laughs> because Jaws is genius. It isn't a it isn't a monster picture. It's a horror movie. You never fucking see the shark until the end, and you, and basically it spends an hour and a half establishing that your kid will never go in the water again, not at the swimming pool. I mean, my sister wouldn't go to the into a fucking pool because she'd seen Jaws when she was too young. Those black eyes roll over white. So I did see Jaws, and it it did a number on me. But Star Wars was for sure the first kid movie 
of its kind, but you have to remember there was nothing, there, there was no precedent for Star Wars in any direction. It was the first of its kind in, in everything. I'm envious that you saw this so young in a theater because the first time I saw it in a theater was uh, 97. And it's just different. You're different formatively when you're, when you're 18. Seeing this as a nine-year-old, like there are some really scary images in, the, in it, like the burned bodies of Uncle yeah. Owen and Aunt Beru. Like that is, that's a grislier image than your average movie that a nine-year-old is going to see. Well, and when that when that shot came in this watching, that was a horrible moment, and I was scarred by it, seeing their burned carcasses. And you know, this the this the camera doesn't zoom in on them. Now it kind of lets you puzzle through what you're looking at in yeah. a in a way that is really intense, almost like it it almost hits harder when you realize you've been looking at two corpses for a couple of seconds. And I and I I knew it, I knew the shot was coming, and so I watched for it because my memory of it was that it was a close up on the on these burned bodies, and then it's this kind of wide shot of smoke pouring out of the hole and lots of burned kind of stuff lying around, and then you then your eye goes, oh, what the what am I see? Oh no! And it's really pretty short, but to my nine year old mind, I mean, it burned it it burned into my retinas. I can still recall their postures. Well, and it's like kind of a normal image for a war movie, but I don't, and while this movie has war in the name, I don't know that that's necessarily what everybody thought they were getting themselves into. It's the only depiction of actual dead bodies. Everyone else gets shot while they're wearing a, a plastic helmet. You don't see death in the way that you see it here. Even the even the chopped off arm, yeah, is kind of. Um, you don't really see very much gore. You just see the sleeve and then some blood. Can I ask maybe a crazy question about this scene? Did Obi-Wan allow this to happen? You know, taking it as its own thing, not considering any other Star Wars film before or after, like really trying to isolate it in its own moment. And when Luke finds Obi-Wan, he makes an admonition about his identity, and then he sees the emergency message from Leia and instead of rushing to help Leia, he decides to teach Luke about the Force. Like, he doesn't act as if shit is going down. And he has a sense of, like, time and space that makes me think that his perception of the future and the past might be closer than we realize. And when they're fucking around with the Sand People and they, and they realize that it's been blown up by stormtroopers, like there's a calm resignation about him in that moment that makes it seem as though he knows what's already happened. He has seen this before. This finally frees up Luke to be his student. Is that an insane read? <laughs> I mean, you have to headcanon, like, how aware is he that the Imperials are, like, there, at, like, on the planet, and... He has to know that, though, right? But he doesn't ever, like, admit that he knows it until they see the the shot-up Jawa yeah. truck. Yeah. That truck was badass. Yeah, that was a cool truck. Well, except for the weird digital moment where he decided he needed a shot of the Jawa truck, which, historically, and in every other shot, moves, like, one inch an hour. <laughs> it's like the space shuttle crawler situation. 
yeah then there's this one shot that that gets thrown in there where it looks like it it looks like a digital shot or a different model or something and this thing is just hauling ass it's just four wheeling (laughs) you're like what is that that's not how the thing does god damn it i i watched that same shot or that same scene with the same idea uh the same questions adam and again lucas and his apologists and the universe creating fan culture around him I don't know how much they credit him in these early scene in these early days with having a fully fledged world in his mind. I think Lucas wants us to think that he did because it allows him to, you know, be incredibly indulgent of himself and say like, oh, well, I always intended that the stormtroopers would be, you know, riding on giant lizards. I just didn't have the blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, you didn't. (laughs) You fucking did not. Because you, you, because you attempted a lot of things, you know, like if you had it in your mind, you attempted it. There's a lot of crazy stuff in this movie that you, that you managed to pull off. Yeah. I mean, they, and they also have a lot that they didn't manage to pull off. Like they shot that scene with Han Solo talking to Jabba and like, it just didn't work. And so well, and the, and it wasn't necessary because he just basically repeats all the same dialogue that he said to Greedo. Like he says the right. exact same word. Yeah, so but, they, they later put in CG puppet that also didn't work. <laughs> but as far as like Obi-Wan living as a hermit uh, in his little mid-century modern uh, <laughs> like stucco um, spaceport yeah. house. Got four walls and Adobe slats. And there's a chandelier in the utility room, because why not? Like here's Obi-Wan and Luke, who is Darth Vader's son who's living with his uncle, who presumably his uncle is related to Darth Vader or related to Darth Vader's, or related to Luke's mom. And Luke's mom is what? The princess of the Federation or something, right? I mean, who's Luke's mom? I didn't watch those early three films. Luke's mom is somebody, right? Somebody important. Yeah, she's uh, she's Jean Renault's protege. Yeah, right. Oh, so God. I'm hearing so, that rumbling in the distance of like a bunch of mechanical keyboards, a, yeah. a million mechanical keyboards crying out, <laughs> and then silenced. Like yeah, this is silence. actually the the first episode of this podcast that we're doing that we hope no social media discussions are started. Yeah, yeah. Rob should cut a new closing. We are not asking for social media engagement at the end of this. <laughs> uh, but so so here we have all these characters that are part of an like basically like the epic fabric of space politics at the time. You know, Jedi Master and either the brother of Darth Vader or the brother-in-law of Darth Vader and his wife or maybe the maybe his wife and Darth Vader are brother and sister. I mean, they're related somehow. They're all related. And Luke but we also don't get a feeling that there are really televisions. So it's possible that Obi-Wan is only vaguely aware of what's going on. Like the, the, the Senate has only just been dissolved. Grand Moff Tarkin, up until this point, the implication is that the Empire has been, you know, still a sort of a functioning democracy. It's like pre- it's like kind of a, a Reichstag in 1931. That's a hot take type of situation. <laughs> then, or like now, if you will. Or now, <laughs> right. 
And then there's this burning of the Reichstag. Well, we don't, we don't know whether we're going to have a democracy by the time this episode comes out. Let's I'm, pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that it will survive. Wow, that's very confident. I, uh, I, have, I have a mouthful of canker sores that say otherwise. Well, I'll tell you, you millennials haven't lived through enough uh, really bad presidents yet. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> I've seen a few. That dissolution of the Senate thing does seem to sort of blindside most of the senior staff of the military. Yeah, everybody's like, say what? Like, How are we going to keep them down on the farm? Is that why they're cramming just anyone into any X-Wing? Like, <laughs> it's not like we have any oversight here. <laughs> well, but also, is it, I mean, Obi-Wan Kenobi, did Obi-Wan ever actually see Darth Vader in his helmet post uh, lava bath. Oh God! <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> like Obi Wan may not be aware of the role that Darth is playing in the the new government. I watched Darth Vader's behavior through this whole movie, conscious as we all are, that he is the father of Luke and Leia. Yeah. Does he behave like the father of these two? Oh, sp- spoiler alert! Sorry. Oops. <laughs> um, because they're all, it's a war movie trope, right? That the bad guy is going to, for one reason or another, either for honor or for respect or for a variety of reasons, is going to let his primary antagonist slip through his fingers intentionally. You know, we just saw it with the enemy below, where there's, there's this sort of, like there's this mutual respect between adversaries, and in the end, they can't bring themselves to kill one another. Right. But there are multiple opportunities for Darth Vader to rid himself of the Princess Leia problem by killing her, and he keeps going to her defense. And somehow Grand Moff Tarkin doesn't know that they're related. I suspect that George Lucas didn't know they were related when he was making this, but maybe he did. I don't think he's that smart, right? I don't think (laughs) Lucas is smart enough to have made this movie conscious of the fact that Darth Vader is their father. I think he thought that up later. That's the that's the puzzling thing about George Lucas is like so much of this is so great and then like the all of the follow through in like building out the world is so profoundly fucked up. Well, and 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 when when it was revealed that Darth was was their father in in uh, in Revenge of the Nerds or whatever the fucking next movie was, (laughs) Empire Strikes Back. Empire Strikes Back. I mean, that just rocked everybody's world, just rocked our worlds because it really came as a surprise. And I think the reason it came as a surprise was it's not telegraphed in this at all. No, no, there's no, it's not telegraphed, but there are, there are several times when, when Darth goes to bat for Leia with Grand Moff Tarkin and says, you know, she may uh, turn out to be useful after all. And then Darth is the only thing that can stop Luke from destroying the Death Star what do you mean? And he doesn't get shot by Han Solo. He just gets bumped. He gets, he gets bonked. bumped by, by his other, uh, the other X-Wing there. And then he just like tumbles off into space like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so I bet you when Lucas was writing Empire Strikes Back script, he was like, wait a minute. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, 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 show me the old movie. Show me the first movie. And he watched the whole movie like, did I leave this door open? Did I leave it open? Oh my God, he's their father. Wow, I'm a genius. <laughs> like, it, it really is, he really threads it so well. But it's, a, it's the rare war movie where the, where the primary bad guy, watching it now, we know has like 
he's basically like these are his kids vader has such an interesting role in the in the imperial military too because he's kind of not like in the chain of command but he's like definitely lower than grand moff tarkin in terms of like like he's definitely not in charge anywhere right I really enjoyed that tension between them. It felt very like Rabin Netanyahu. Like, <laughs> uh-huh. that, and that and that tension between them was amazing because like Grand Moff Tarkin flips Vader a ton of shit. He does. Like he gets ripped on for being a religious figure and believing in this crazy hocus pocus the same way that Obi Wan does by yeah. uh, by Han Solo. Obi Wan has a lot more composure around that, by the way. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> he's not choking people out. Yeah, like I, I was actually, I thought that that was like maybe the most interesting character moment for Obi Wan. It's like he's so much confidence that Han can just sit there and talk about how it's bullshit the entire time, and he doesn't even really rebut it at all. Yeah, he's like, yeah, okay, you can believe whatever you want. Like that's pretty cool. He is really the star of this movie. Yeah, he's great. Oh, yeah. Like, he's, it's he's, his film. Well, and he's the only person in the movie that is a movie star. Yeah. I mean, Grand Moff Tarkin, right, obviously is like Peter Cushing and Alec Guinness are both famous and have been in a lot of movies. And when Alec Guinness takes that takes his hood off there and reveals his super beautiful little face, <laughs> I'm sure moviegoers at the time were like, oh! <gasps> Wow, it's the guy from the bridge over the river Kwai. <laughs> but when you know when Tarkin says when Vader is choking that guy out, Tarkin does not say Vader cease and desist immediately choking that general out. <laughs> right. He says something like, "Enough of this, Vader, release him." Like knock it off. And Vader does not say yes, sir. He says as you wish. And so there is this weird relationship that's like. So in, in Princess Bride speak, uh, he just told him he loved him. Mm-hmm. As you wish. Or he says something like that. Like, uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, as you wish. <laughs> Man, I was, I was trying to figure out how to connect Princess Bride to that. And uh, you really beat me to the punch, Adam. <laughs> but again, that's a kind of weird Nazi trope. I guess I right? shouldn't be playing games on my phone while I podcast. That's the problem. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to stop looking at 4chan for a second here <laughs> and actually listen to what you guys are saying. You're giving up these connections to me in a way you don't normally do. No. Uh, but the but in Nazi films, you often see a situation where there is regular army. There will be some regular army colonel or general that's running the show, but then there will be a Gestapo guy. Right. And the Gestapo, and you see it even in Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they've they're on a mission. There's a commander. There's a everything is. Um, there's a hierarchy, and then, but then there's, there's that guy in plain clothes. Yeah, right. The guy, the guy who's in a leather trench coat, who is wearing a fedora, and who's just like, "Hello, you know, <laughs> nice to meet you," and and so there is this kind of like uh, within at least our our understanding of Nazi Germany and how it's portrayed. There were so many different kinds of like, oh, it's the Wehrmacht, but over here it's the SS, and here's the Gestapo, and here are all these different somewhat competing organizations within the overarching bad guy sphere. And Vader feels like one of those, but he's also a priest, right? Or he feels like some kind of strange Gestapo person, a member of a different order. Right. Who's, who has to obey, but also is like 
But he could also tap a couple of fighter pilots on the shoulder and say, come with me. Yeah, right. He's kind of wandering around. And, and, and they attempt to do that with his son, uh, the guy from the, the Lena Denham's boyfriend, uh, the guy from <laughs> Girls, the Darth, Darth Girls. You're speaking of Adam Driver. <laughs> Adam Driver, right. I, I think we could call him Darth Girls. Darth Girls. Darth uh, Girls is your call sign, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> they try to establish him as some kind of other creature but but their world is too small it's it's strange that the later movies there's so much more happening but the world is so much smaller somehow i, I try to find a, a a pedantic quibble about the movies we watch and you know sometimes when they're this old it is hard to find something because just not that much has been written about <laughs> yeah the films i'm surprised uh, so, you were able to find this movie so I, you know, I did a lot of digging, and I came up with uh, with this. And uh, you know, when you when you really process this, it kind of undoes basically the whole film. Uh, it doesn't make sense after this point. When Han jumps into the garbage chute, it takes about five seconds until he lands. A simple physics calculation: distance mm-hmm. equals one half times acceleration times time squared for initial velocity zero shows that this would indicate a fall of about 400 feet, which would have certainly killed them all. <laughs> wow. That was the end of the movie right there. They, Good point. <laughs> and also, why is there a terrifying monster living in the garbage system of a newly built space station? Did they bring that monster? Or are they like, oh, we got to put some garbage monsters in here. Can't have a, a trash system without monsters in it. Yeah, maybe he eats plastic. <laughs> well, it's true that, that it is a brand new space station, isn't it? Yeah, it's got that new space station smell. Yeah, so where did the old creepy monster come from? Interesting. Maybe they built the station around that monster. Oh, right. I had a thought. They, they've got these like big roly-poly monsters in one of the newer... Uh, Star Wars movies, and uh, I was wondering if this is one of those. I mean, the Star Wars was novel and looked amazing to us at the time because it was in advance of Blade Runner, the first real science fiction movie that made the future look dirty. Right, yeah. I mean, it's like we licked uh, Saving Private Ryan's asshole so much over how much texture there is in all the all the clothing and how everything is worn in believably. And that's true in this movie too. Like the, the helmets are like super, super used. Like Luke definitely gets hand me down gear to get in his fighter fighter plane. And the, and the fighter plane is old and dirty as well. Yeah. Even Vader's helmet, not glossy. Yeah. I, I, I figure that's more just because like, uh, we don't want to see studio lights in the helmet the entire time. Yeah. <laughs> but, but to the viewer, it really seemed so much more real because other space epics and science fiction stuff, anything taking place in the future, everything's spick and span, perfectly yeah. clean. Every, uh, the future has eliminated all problems is what science fiction meant to us. If you think There about, isn't even dust in the future. Yeah, 2001 A Space Odyssey. I mean, there's no like wear and tear on their uniforms. Right. And so that was really... Uh, what was neat about it. And I think the garbage chute was maybe a way of 
really turning the knob up on that. Like not only <laughs> is the future, I mean, we're walking around and they keep it real clean and everything, but they are also all pooping all the time. All these drones are pooping. And, uh, and for some reason they, they create a lot of garbage in the form of gray foam chunks Yeah, because most of what's in that garbage chute is just gray spray painted foam chunks well when you unbox a droid john you're gonna be left with all its packing material (laughs) and uh that's where's it gonna go it's gonna go in the in the compactor down the chute what purpose do you think that that little remote control black vehicle performs like what what could that thing possibly be doing Every time we ask a question like this, I would love it if Rob just put in that, the sound of thunderous keyboards. <laughs> <laughs> is that like a is that like a Roomba? Is that why the the hallways on the Death Star are so are so shiny? I bet you know what if if it's a Roomba, I'm glad they went to a squared off model because that's the only way you're going to get into a corner. Yeah. That's right. That's right. The circle is is the main reason I'm not buying a Roomba. That and yeah. I can't afford a Roomba. I mean, my question is, what the fuck is an R2 unit and what do they do? What does an <laughs> R2 unit do? I mean, it's great if you if you can plug it into somebody else's computer. But, I mean, and, and frankly, R2 does periodically, like, when they're escaping the Death Star, suddenly it's revealed that he has a fire extinguisher in, in him, <laughs> which was cool. Like, that's handy to have. He's a, a, a multi-use robot that happens to be a elite hacksaw. But even now, I mean, we have, even in 2018, the technology to build an R2 unit in the sense that it's not ambulatory. It's not bipedal. It's, right. it's like a garbage can with, with um, a tricycle on it. And a little person inside. So you could put a bunch of computers in a like a fire hydrant and have it roam around your house even now <laughs> but we don't do it because it's not a very good design for a robot the one time it does seem pretty good is when r2 is serving drinks on the uh on the luxury yacht like that kind of makes sense it's like a bar cart that brings the bar cart to you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. are the droids sentient because they're sold as slaves so if they're sentient i think that's pretty fucked up and also, R2 is referred to as he a bunch. So does he have a crank? Right. Like, does is R2 packing? Is that like when he when he goes into tripod configuration? Is that his dong? <laughs> well, I read a thing on the internet, and believe me, I do not read Star Trek things on the internet. <laughs> but I read a thing recently, uh, somebody's tweet, and I wish I could quote them directly, but they said, Chewbacca cannot speak. But Chewbacca is not a pet. He's a, an autonomous being. So nobody named him Chewbacca. His name is Chewbacca. But how do we know that if he cannot himself say the word Chewbacca? Well, I think it's clear that's how he signs his checks, John. <laughs> <laughs> so he writes. Yeah. He Chewbacca writes. wrote it down and, he's, and people are like, what's your name? And he's like, Mwah. <laughs> when you pick up his crossbow, uh, for a time he got into labeling things. He got one of those labelers, Chewbacca's and he put his name crossbow. on everything. Yeah, uh, he said, "You you done it? You you done hired the hitmaker, Chewbacca? He can do the calculations for light speed, but he also loves to get a scritch behind the ears." <laughs> this movie is the kind of iteration of the mono myth that has most captured our culture uh, at this point. 
And I, I was thinking in watching this movie that we don't really know like what's so bad about the empire. Like we know that they ended democracy and are ruling via fear, but that's kind of the extent of it. Like it's not totally clear. Like we just, we kind of have to take the movie's word for it that, that this is the worst possible situation and that the rebellion is right. But the bad guys are so like visibly bad and the good guys are so visibly good. I was wondering, watching it, did we lose our appetite for fighting big wars when we started to, like, think of evil as looking evil? And, and when we can't, like, impute that onto an enemy, we have less of a willingness to commit ourselves as a society to a war effort. Like, you know, World War II being the last time that the whole country, you know, really got behind a war effort. I mean, the Germans in World War II and the Japanese both did us a huge favor by really, really amping up the bad guy costumes. Yeah. They did us another favor by losing. (laughs) Well, that wasn't a favor they did us. We beat them with our big power. I think interesting, even more interesting, or not maybe more interesting, but as a uh, corollary to that, is kind of the Matrix problem, which is that good guys in movies, in big blockbuster movies, now have become this, uh, they're always represented as a ragtag, multicultural bunch of sort of like natural fiber clad, um, (laughs) you know, like the the PTA of a Sonoma Valley Montessori school. I love that country song. <laughs> Sonoma Harper Valley PTA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, you have this not only is the are are the are the bad guys a monolithic black leather clad evil doers, but that the good guys are always this sort of rebel band. And I think it's I think that informs the American the current American cultural situation where every single subgroup of people in America right now thinks of themselves as the resistance to something. Right. Right. I mean, the NRA, like Dodge Ram truck driving, uh, <laughs> central Texas. What you're saying is that there's a Calvin peeing on something sticker for everyone now. Yeah. Right. And, but, but in the United States today, no one will acknowledge that they are in power. Yeah. Like the Trump uh, people are convinced that they are the resistance, but also the liberal democratic elite also thinks of itself as the resistance. The intellectual uh, left thinks it's the resistance, but also the like uh, working class whites think they're the resistance. There's no one will stand up in America and say, uh, we are the we're authority. in charge. We're in yeah. charge. <laughs> no one wants to be the empire. Nobody wants to be the empire anymore. And because all you need to do is cloak yourself. I think yourselves. Putin like explicitly wants to be the empire though. Putin does. He's yeah. fine with it. But, but uh, all you have to do is kind of cloak yourselves in this costume, you know, of like a dirty yellow motorcycle jacket and say the other side is the evil empire. I mean, listening, listening to the, the political tenor on the internet now Everyone is that everyone else is the Death Star. And that's astonishing. Not because it's so appealing to be the bad guy, but because the barrier to being the good guy, the barrier to entry to being the good guy is so low. Hmm. All, all you have to do to be the good guy now is just 
just say that you're just call yourself the good guy and say the other guys are the bad guy and act put upon <laughs> but right there there is no army here fighting the fighting the empire it's yeah. a, it's a bunch of people with borrowed borrowed guns there's a uh, there's a car I see in my neighborhood a bunch that is a, a black minivan and they have a bunch of imperial logos all over it and then like the family stickers in the back window are all stormtroopers they're like who is this nerd dad that is like really into their family identifying with the empire <laughs> what is that well you know and it may be you'll see him someday and he'll have a fedora on yeah and he'll be and he'll and he'll have a like i anonymous t-shirt on and you're like oh shit it's 4chan it's like 4chan lives in my neighborhood 4chan the person anonymous <laughs> now i am the master well what do you guys think did we did we review this as a war movie did we do what our podcast i mean i feel like we kind of did right I think it works really well as a war movie. It's able to assimilate, if you will. I know both of your little Spock ears just started twitching mm-hmm. the use of the word assimilate. Yeah, my, the points grew two points. It's able to assimilate a lot of different war movie ideas and thread them all together pretty well. There, there aren't huge continuity holes in the motivations of people and in it's it's easy to follow what's going on um and the enemy is clear and and yet and we come in halfway through the action and it, it, there isn't a ton of explication even though that stupid crawl at the beginning and it leaves itself wide open for i mean the war doesn't end at the end of the of the film which is true of i think most great war movies like you don't end on victory you end on like you, you win the battle but not the war hopefully mm. like have we ever seen a have we ever seen a movie on this show yet where the end of the movie is the end of the war hmm. it's usually that the, they win the battle and, yeah and and hopefully it turns the tide of the war well yeah i feel like the end of a war is usually like a diplomatic situation or like a bunch of guys meeting on the deck of a a carrier to sign a, a document, you know, like the, there can be drama in that, but it's not necessarily the drama, the same kind of drama you want to depict in a war film. So I think it works. And I, and I like, I like princess Leia being so much more than just a princess. She really should have been in that medal ceremony, getting a medal. Well, and that's, she's that the one is, that got the plans, you know, like <laughs> without her, she puts the last medal on herself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's the and hero, also, but what about Chewbacca? Is he chopped liver? Well, he's just a carpet. She said it at the beginning. <laughs> well, Maybe he of, is a pet. A lot of uh, Chewbacca erasure in this movie. <laughs> Did she need one of those seatbelt extenders on the on the ribbon for the <laughs> for the metal to get it around his giant head? I thought that was interesting. Uh, that she then, I I guess she's the. That's that's another question about the rebellion, right? Because she is royalty. She is some kind of she represents an an a, an aristocracy that they're trying to what? reestablish. Yeah. 
What's up with, why is the rebellion fighting on, for the cause of the divine right of kings? Yeah, exactly, Ben. You need to get your, you need to really <laughs> sharpen your <laughs> socialist blades here. Stay woke, <laughs> Star Wars fans. <laughs> this little one's not worth the effort. This is the part where we're right up to it, aren't we? We've got to rate this war film. We have to. That's our job. For every war film we talk about, uh, we design a special rating system, a custom rating system for that film. For Star Wars, the title of the film, with no appendages about uh, about what chapter it is or what phraseology occurs after the chapter. Star Wars, I'm assigning a scale of one to five medals. <laughs> I haven't seen Star Wars, I think, in close to 20 years, really. Hmm. Like, hmm. I, I can't remember seeing it after I saw it for the re-release. So this this felt fairly new and fresh. Like, this isn't a foundational film for me. This isn't a touchstone that I return to every year. And so it felt good to watch it with... It's no Gremlins for you? <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. It's no Gremlins. But I loved it in the rewatch for all of its... I mean... I'm I'm taking away its its weird digitization choices and setting those off to the side and and judging it for the film that I think it originally was. That's very charitable of you. Mm-hmm. I think no film has a more perfect relationship between itself and the score. We didn't even talk about how great the score is uh, or the sound effects. I mean, sound design and score yeah are so wonderful. It's one of the ways that makes this film feel so modern. Like, I feel like the transitions are the only thing that date it. I feel like Jaws looks very old compared to this film. You're talking about the wipes? Yeah, like those transitions are the things that place it in its late 70s time. But in most other ways, it it looks great. It looks great right now. This is back when George Lucas actually knew how people talk to each other dialogue wise. Uh, it's a war film with a lot of quiet moments and interpersonal relationship things that, that like I really appreciated. It's two hours and it's super efficient. It like we've seen a lot of two-hour war films that really dragged, and this one did not. It's hard to believe that this was made in 1977, but for all those reasons, I'm going to give it five medals. Perfect score for me. Boom! Ding 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 ding, ding ding ding! I think that's the first fiver that I've ever given. Yeah, uh, yeah I, lo- I really love this movie. Uh, the The re-release CG garbage does kind of break my heart, and I mean, I'll just I'll just add my voice to the millions that have cried out for a, <laughs> a, an issuance of the original in HD so that we can enjoy it. And I'll even go so far as to say I want original theatrical release in a 4K telecine in high dynamic range so we can really enjoy it on these fancy new televisions. And uh, I'll give it a, yeah, four and a half medals, subtracting one medal just for the the obstinance of Lucasfilm and uh, withholding the, uh, the OG version. Like don't don't you think that that would just they would just hammer checks for like a decade if they put that out? It's also profoundly irritating that this is not a rentable film digitally. Like you must buy it everywhere. It's it's like fifteen to twenty dollars. There's no rental option on Amazon or or Netflix or whatever. Like yeah, you gotta buy it, and that feels like a cash grab. Yeah, it's infuriating, and it's infuriating because it's a great picture. 
And there's a reason that that we've built up a huge world around it. It stands up. It really does. These characters are all real. There's you don't watch this and go, oh, that's so. I mean, it's no cornier now than it was then. There's no weird, like political stuff that doesn't hold up. Like it's it was ahead of its time. It's also smart, but it's also fun. I mean, it's a great movie, and and a lot of it feels like luck, like dumb luck. You know, this guy, this hubristic young director, competing with his talented friends, and they're and all, John Milius, and John Milius. They're all, you know, it's like any kind of scene, right? It's like the 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 any scene that produces more than one good band uh, that friendly competition between people that are like oh yeah you like you like sergeant pepper huh well here comes pet sounds that produces really cool stuff always for a brief period and unfortunately it turned the creator george lucas into a monster he became what he set out to destroy right and he created some wonderful things even even after this i mean i think if we were if we were able to watch indiana jones as part of this which Maybe we are. There are Nazis in it. It's a. It's technically a war film. If the Nazis get a hold of the Ark of the Covenant, they're going to melt faces <laughs> all around the world. Because it'll give them such good uh, guitar skills, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but it created a monster in a way that, like, you know, Francis Ford Coppola made some amazing movies. Let's not discount him for a moment but he does not make it he does not make you buy the godfather 2 and he did not digitally put Jabba the Hutt in godfather 2 and claim that he'd always wanted him there he just didn't have the technology like there are there are people there were friends of this George Lucas man who also made amazing movies and did not fuck them up although Coppola did fuck up Apocalypse Now with this whole redux so maybe it's a maybe it's there's something in the water of all this <laughs> Spielberg didn't though right Spielberg uh, hasn't gone back and fucked he with did. anything he fucked what did he up do? Uh, he fucked up E.T. there's a the, the version of E.T. you can get now has a CG E.T. in it and all of the guns have been replaced bit with uh, walkie talkies because what he didn't, he didn't want kids to see men carrying guns entering no, the house really Yep. Oh, really? Oh, they're so what it is is that they're all monsters. They're all assholes. It's a generation of failed artists. Men who I guess we sweep into the dustbin of history. But Star Wars, you cannot sweep into the dustbin of history. And I say that not as someone who saw this at 9 years old, but at 49 years old, I'm watching this movie and still loving it, loving everything about it. And it's a five-star movie. Or it's a five metal movie, except this version of it that we're forced to consume for reasons that are indefensible. And I mean, obviously, there are bigger fish to fry. I can just hear the keyboards. You know what's indefensible is, you know, eating animals for food. Ah, shut up. But what's crazy to me is that the internet world of people that love stealing albums from musicians that absolutely just love to get all the music free that they can and pay bands like, say, for instance, The Long Winters, point zero 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 one cent for every listen. 
somehow I've not figured out a way to fuck these guys over and get the real good movie and put it up on the internet and fuck the world. Some people want to watch the world burn and I'm one of those people. Mm. Why can we not use our evil technologies for good? The empire is them. We are the ragtag fugitive fleet. Damn. So I have to give this movie, I have to ding it a half a star for the for Lucas. A what? I'm sorry. I have to ding it half a medal, half of a like a weird imperialist medal, a weird like <laughs> royal knight of the garter medal, whatever that entitles those guys to. Do the medals ever show up again, like in no. a in a desk drawer or something? I think I think when they go to the most Eisley space bar, they get free drinks. <laughs> maybe they maybe they don't get served now. So yeah, I got I got to ding it. I mean, I want to ding it a whole one, but even with the garbage, yeah, there's the the brilliance still still pierce through. It does. Well, John, did you have a guy? Oh, so many guys. <laughs> and uh, you know, draw this out as long as you can. I didn't mention <laughs> anything about having anywhere to be in twenty minutes. <laughs> well, you guys go first. Come back to me. All right. Well, my guy is Obi-Wan, and uh, this is something I noticed for the first time in this watch through, and I, d- I didn't even notice it until they're on the Falcon and they're like showing up at the place in space formerly known as Alderaan. Um, he's got a big red wine stain on his tunic. <laughs> and uh, like that just completed a picture for me of what he was doing in his retirement. He's, 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 not, he's not hiding. He's just a chill old man that's like walking around his, his airy bungalow out in the middle of the desert, you know, taking the desert air and having a glass of wine. He's a, he's a chill dude. He's chilling the most. Yeah, he spills a little wine on his on his uh, Jedi robes, and he's like, "Hey, no harm, no foul. I don't I don't need to impress anybody. I'm an old man." That's a so. great guy and a great reason. Adam, who's your guy? God, I really wanted to give it to Porkins, but instead, <laughs> you brought up oh, something. You brought up something earlier that uh, that I thought of when I saw the movie, and then I was glad was brought up again during our conversation. My guy is Chewie. And Chewie is as vital to the mission success as anyone. He is a hero, a capital H hero in this, in this mission and in this war. He attends the medal ceremony, not only as an attendee, but he walks up to the front Yeah, with, with Luke and Han. He's in the procession. He's on the dais. What the fuck is he doing up there if he's not going to get a medal of his own? Maybe they were like, hey, hey, listen, princess, uh... The Wookiee's getting a medal, but don't try and put it on him. He's a little bitey. I'll never be recognized for my myriad contributions to this show in a way <laughs> in a way that Chewie does not at the end of Star Wars. So that's why Chewie's my guy. Yeah, the the thing is that medals are for white guys only, Adam. Like it's gonna <laughs> it's gonna tarnish the medal if you give it to. <laughs> Doesn't mean the same thing anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's just like oh well, if a fucking Wookiee gets a medal, then what the fuck good is it, right? <laughs> I wish there was a version where uh, where there's like 15 seconds of Luke and Han looking at each other and then looking back at Leia and looking at each other like, there's a third medal, right? Like, <laughs> like, what is going on here? This is so embarrassing. I wish there was a scene where they took their medals and went, ting! <laughs> they bite them like Olympians. Yeah. <laughs> is that why Chewie is screaming at the end of this medal ceremony? Wow. No, that's, that's all he can do. 
Yeah. That's all he can do is he has one do sound. That yell. <laughs> Who's your guy, John? So in that scene where Grand Moff Tarkin and the generals are sitting around the table, right? This was another really hugely affecting scene for a nine-year-old where Vader chokes the general out with his superpowers. Um, there are two generals that are yelling and the one general that gets choked out, you kind of, in your mind, you conflate the two and you think like, oh, there's this general that's like talking smack and, and then Vader shows him who's boss. But there's actually two guys there and the other general is the one that was saying, well, wait a minute, the rebels, we have to think about these rebels. This is a big deal. Like you, you, you know, the Senate is going to freak out about this action that we've just taken capturing Leia and all this, you know, like blowing up Alderaan, like we're not going to get away with this. And that's when Tarkin says, we've just dissolved the Senate. We're in, we're in complete control. And that guy, you, you want to think he was speaking pretty freely, let's yeah. say for somebody in the imperial government. He obviously like was sowing his oats there. But then it was the other guy who was smug, who was kind of like, don't worry about it. We've got it all under control. He like smugged the first general <laughs> and then made the mistake of trying to smug Vader. He was the one that got choked out. But my guy is the first general, the, the like straight talking, don't underestimate the rebels general. To keep your eye on the prize general. That's right. He ends up getting blown up when the Death Star gets blown up. Like everybody we see in this movie. I mean, this is another one of these movies where what we're not talking about is probably what conservatively like three billion people die on Alderaan. I see. I saw a calculation on IMDb that it's just over two billion people die in this movie. Yeah, right. <laughs> Biggest body count of any movie we've seen yet. Yeah, so it's a that's a lot that's of people a, dying. Fourteen more than Rambo two. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, my guy is that general, the, the straight-talking general who, who actually saw with the clearest eye the threat that the rebels presented and who was astonished that, that the Senate had been dissolved. Like, he was, not, he was not a lackey, right? He was still thinking for himself, even in this big organization. World War II movies are back in play, right? Yeah. Okay, let me, uh, let me randomize the list. 161 films on the list today. Movie number 60. 60 is... Oh, man. We are staying in space, gentlemen. What? what? The next movie is a 1986 film directed by James Cameron about a war with xenomorphs. It's Aliens. Whoa. Wow. Are you ready for this, Adam? God, I'm so ready. Is this, this is the kind be, of popcorn chomper that you've been waiting for? This is going to be the first two-hour episode of Friendly Fire. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I'm pretty excited about this. Uh, that is uh, going to be a lot of fun, gentlemen. So that'll be next week. Uh, but for now, for John Roderick and Adam Pranick, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fires, a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. The show is edited and produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our podcast art is by Nick Dittmore. 
If you'd like to support Friendly Fire, please visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. And if you feel like joining in the conversation, head on over to Facebook or Reddit. We've got groups there. If you're on Twitter, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.